No? Um, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? Uh, Presbyterians are known to be conservative, um, but on the other hand, I've been in a few denominations, and you can probably swap out Presbyterian for most of those. Um, it's something in human nature. We don't really like change. Well, there's a small fraction of people who do. Maybe if you're youth, you're probably going to be enjoying all changes in life and new adventures, but then there are other parts of change that are just hard. Um, that can be painful, it can be disorientating. At the very least, change takes effort. And that can be hard. And I feel that especially when I'm telling people about Jesus. Because you can't tell someone about Jesus and who he is without calling on them to change. Uh, we said it last week, you know, uh, it's not enough to say that Jesus is a good teacher or that he's a, 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 a very wise person, a nice person. Now, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and, and so that's a, a claim of authority over our lives. It just demands a response to discover that truth. And what we find today in John 2 is signs of change. Jesus shows a sign, and then the Jewish leaders demand a sign, but they're all unpacking some of the implications of change, the change that Jesus is bringing as he arrives and begins his ministry. Here's what I want us to see. Jesus is, a, is going to show us that change is worth it. Change is worth it for our non-Christian friends. It's worth it if you're working out whether to follow Jesus. It can be hard and painful and difficult, but it is worth it. Have a break, and we'll get into the passage. Heavenly Father, please show us the ways in which the change Jesus brings is worth it, uh, no matter how disorientating and challenging. Okay, now, um, just before I get into the passage, it is actually worth being clear what this word signs means. I mean, uh, these days, it's workplace health and safety. You're just pretty much swamped with signs everywhere you walk. You barely turn a corner or breathe without some sort of instructions about how to do it safely. Uh, But when we're talking about signs as a general idea, a sign points to something else. That's the basic thing, that they signal, they, they draw our attention to something that we should notice. So um, that's why we call baptism and the Lord's Supper signs. It's not that uh, there's something magic about uh, getting baptised. It's not that eating the bread and drinking the drink is somehow going to change you. No, they are acts, things that we do, that point us to a greater reality that remind us of Jesus and the sacrifice for us, that remind us of how we're included in the business. What's interesting is that the Old Testament also uses this word signs. It, it remembers God doing signs and wonders. And when it does, it's almost always referring to one thing. It's referring to God's miracles during the Exodus. That's the language of signs in the Old Testament. Now, you know the story. Um, God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to Pharaoh, Egypt's king. Um, and God, when Pharaoh didn't listen to Moses, God did miracles. He, he performed signs to reveal his power. There were water turned to blood, frogs, flies, mosquitoes. He sent boils on their flesh, darkness over the land, and then he sent death. For every firstborn son. 
Now, the Old Testament looks back on those events and consistently describes them as signs. I'm just going to run through the language of the, of the, language of the Old Testament. So, Exodus 7, that work? Um, God tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Now, I'll skip the rest of that. Deuteronomy uh, 26. Um, so the Lord brought us out of Egypt, Moses is looking back on those events, with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, with great terror, and with signs and wonders. Or this in the Psalms, Psalm 135. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of people and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. So even the prophets use the same language. So Jeremiah 32 says, um, you perform signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day. In Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by mighty hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. Signs point to something else, but for the Old Testament, the particular thing they point to is God's power to save. That's what a sign points to. It remembers God's mighty miracles that he did so that his people could stop being slaves. So that they can enter the land of promise. Now, that makes verse 11 in John chapter 2 really strange. Have a look at it. See, on one hand, this is what we normally expect. God's sign reveals his glory. That's what the sentence says. But come back with me and think what the sign is, because it just doesn't look like an Exodus miracle. I mean, go back to verse 1. It starts with a very strange reference to the third day. It's just a bit hard to work out three days from what. Um, can't quite tell from the narrative, but it is interesting that only just before, Jesus was talking about angels ascending into heaven, and we know that Jesus rose from the dead after three days in the grave. So it's an interesting little mention of three days. Anyway, we're shown this pretty minor crisis. Jesus is at a wedding, and the wine runs out. Yeah, there's this social stigma there, it's embarrassing, but even Jesus, he doesn't act like this is a major crisis. His mother tells him there's a problem. He says it's none of his business. Verse 1. On the third day, I went into a place of Cana and Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said, he may have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Seems like Jesus had a bigger fish to fry. Yet Mary is persistent, and so Jesus fixes the problem. He organizes six jars of water, and somehow turns the water into wine. But just notice, they're not just any jars that Jesus used. These jars are used for ceremonial washing, for religious purification. So they were used not just to wash away dirt, but as a, as a symbol of washing away sin, of purifying people so that they could go to the temple. So Jesus is replacing water for cleansing with wine for a wedding. Have a look. Verse 5. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 and 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. 
Many told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And here's the weird thing. At God's signs in Exodus, they were terrifying and majestic plagues, judgment and death. You certainly couldn't miss them. But Jesus' sign here is hidden away. Even the guy who's tasting the wine doesn't know where it came from. It's just a servant, a slave, to anyone's advice. But it still somehow, according to John, reveals God's glory. I guess it does to his disciples because they, they respond in faith. Have a look at verse 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned wine, and he did not realize where it had come from. They were servants who had taken the wood. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed or trusted in him. This is really strange. Why this sign? There's got to be some deeper meaning. And it seems that there is. Because in the Old Testament, God used wine symbolically. It was in our reading from Isaiah 25. Have a look. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that involves all people, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Wine is, is not just wine. It's an indicator that God's promised new era is coming in, that the time when death will be done and when people will sit down at the same table as God and enjoy a, a banquet with him. So symbolically, this is, this is wonderful. Jesus gets rid of the purifying water because you don't need it anymore. Isaiah's day to come. And death is going to come to an end. <laughs> it's not that Jesus takes the water jug out of his fridge, empties out the water and puts champagne in it. No, no, no. Jesus takes the dirty bath water, empties the bath, fills it with ice so that it can be the place where all the drinks for the party come from. That's the picture. And don't just don't miss the beauty of what Jesus did either, because this poor family, that they will be shamed for the community without the wine. Um, apparently you could be sued if you did a bad job catering for the wedding, but Jesus rescues them. Even though it's not his time. The thing I want us to see is that the sign is saying this is good. This is deeply satisfying. Whatever Jesus is bringing in is great. But there is going to be pain because cleansing is still needed. So we immediately switch to the Passover. Interesting, it's the Passover is when you're supposed to remember the signs of God in Egypt. Jesus rocks up to the temple and it's a mess. It's just cluttered with commerce. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. It's not a temporary tantrum. 
It's very deliberate. Jesus takes the time to wrap the leather together, to make a whip, because he can see the change needed. And it's not just the buying and selling that is upset by it, it is where it's happening. This temple belongs to his father, verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house. Consume. It's a temple. That was a place you went to meet God. The temple was a place that you prayed to. It was a place you took the sacrifice to make your relationship right with God. This is the meeting place of God because that's where God is. But it's a mess. Uh, when we moved up from Brisbane to the Gold Coast, sorry, we moved up to Brisbane from the Gold Coast, um, we decided that we, were, we owned a house down there, we would rent that. Uh, we uh, hesitated a few times, especially when we spoke to friends. Because uh, it seems like every time you mention you're going to rent out a house, all the horror stories come out of bad tenants. I remember one in particular, um, they, these friends shared about they put the ad out. People applied, they did all the background checks, everything looked great. But when the tenants moved in, it turned out they were drug dealers. And um, nasty ones. They, they really made a mess of the place. They painted the walls black. They painted the windows black. The place was, it took forever to get them out because you had to get the police involved and go to the law courts. It was, it was an absolute mess. And then when they finally vacated the place, well, it was a disaster time. And look what happens here. The current tenants challenge the son of the owner of the house. And they ask for a sign, which is a very daring thing to do if you know the Exodus story. Signs were pretty serious back then. And Jesus promises a sign, a sign of judgment, just like in the Exodus. He says the temple is condemned. God will stop dwelling with his people. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days. Oh, three days But here's the twist. When the Jewish leaders challenge him on this, John the author then lets us into a secret that Jesus was referring to an ultimate sign. Not the, dest not the destruction of the temple building, he was talking about a very important moment of salvation and judgment. He was talking about his body being killed and then raised again. So that, that was the day when God judged sin and saved us. This is the verse 20. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. There's this sign, and it points to a day of salvation. Keep that in mind, but just to cover the chapter off, um, these last verses, they actually sort of belong to next week's sermon, but I just want to point out two things. Um, first of all, these last verses correct a certain wrong thinking we have about faith. So often we think faith is the thing you have when you lack facts. 
It's the trust that's based on no truth at all. But actually, the word faith, believing, it's just the normal word trust. It is ordinary trust. Because you can see it here being used interchangeably. The people trust Jesus, but Jesus doesn't trust them. There's something wrong in their hearts. And that's the other thing to see. It's all well and good to say that the temple is going to need to change, but this is all leading into a much bigger change. Change is needed in the heart that we're going to look at next week. So have a look at the verses. Verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. They trusted Jesus. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He didn't believe in them. He didn't, didn't want his life to be taken care of by them. For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. We'll come back to that next week. But the big thing to notice is that, that things need to change. The temple needs to change, and that's leading us to a need for a heart change. There's something wrong with the human heart. Okay. So chapter 2 of John's book, very clear, change is coming. On one hand, it's going to be painful. The old system is being dismantled, the temple, religion for a prophet, that's all coming to an end. But, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Let's think about each of those things in a little more detail. So change is painful. Then Jesus brings about a total rethink in what we think relationship with God is like. And especially in terms of, of where we meet God. Um, it is really interesting that our wrong thinking, our temple theology just keeps popping back in the Tristan church. We keep looking for a place to go to, to meet God. So, um, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Uh, you go in there, there is this beautiful inscription right next to the glass doors as you're going through. And there's this quote from Genesis 28, verse 17. It's the same passage when Jesus talks about angels ascending and descending into heaven. That's the passage Jesus was referring to. And they quote the same passage. It says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. But it's not. Because Jesus took that verse and he applied it to himself. You get the same thing at King's College. It's really quite ironic there because you going to King's College, it's got a sign about being this house of God, and therefore you need to be quiet and reverent. And then right next to the sign is the store where you can buy all the CDs of the King's College Cambridge Choir. So either, according to John 2, either they should get rid of the store because the sign is correct, or they should get rid of the sign and they can keep the store. You see, we keep getting it wrong about thinking about church buildings, they are not temples. And look, it's not just buildings either. We can have the same wrong thinking about our church services. Um, Pentecostal theology does this sometimes. You know, talk about God being present in our worship, in our singing. And it's therefore, what are you invited to do? Well, you're invited to buy a recording of the service so you can take it home afterwards and experience the same sort of relationship with God through your recording. No. And, and look, before you think of uh, picking other denominations, we Presbyterians have been good at both those mistakes, so we've built some pretty fancy buildings in our time, and we've also had some pretty strange thoughts about what goes in on on a Sunday, so we're not immune to this in any sense. But my point is, we make this mistake easily. 
And we say you meet God in places or experiences. The one true place you meet God is in Jesus. You want to have a place to discover who God is and look at his life. If you want to speak to someone and know that you're being heard by God himself, you speak to Jesus. Uncomfortable as it is, we need to change our thinking. Even if it upsets people, we need to be honest about this truth. Uh, next week we're going to look at the heart change, so I'm just going to hold that off. But, but the other thing I want us to see today is that it's going to be good. That the change is worth it. Um, this new age that Jesus makes possible, it, it started with his life here on earth, and it will continue into eternity with a banquet. It's, it's a relationship that's fantastic. I really think there's something significant that Jesus' sign looks so different to the Exodus signs. See, in the Exodus, God sent plagues and sickness in Jesus. God sings a wine so a wedding can continue. That says a lot. So in both cases, God is pointing to both judgment and salvation. In the Exodus, God judged the Egyptians and saved the Israelites. In Jesus, God judges his son so that we can be saved, you and me. That's really amazing. It's what John said in his opening verses. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth comes through Jesus. There is something wonderful, something so much better that happens when we have a relationship with God through Jesus. And so it's not really surprising that when the Jewish leaders ask for a sign, Jesus points to the cross. Because the cross sees people kill or destroy the temple to God's son. God's the one who rebuilds it. God's the one who rebuilds it. Now, that says that our relationship with God now is just so much better than we could ever imagine. The thing is, though, that I'm not expecting that true experience day to day. So, I, I know that some of us at the moment are finding things hard. Um, I know for some it's family relationships, for some it's people they love and really care about them. It's not that life as a Christian is one long banquet and everything is easy. But what I hope you find is in the midst of that pain, you can come to Jesus, remember the cross, remember him turning water into wine and realise that it's all going to be worth it. All the change, all the challenges. We are already clean, we're done with the purifying water. Jesus has brought the wine of banquet. The wine was promised when death will be done for forever. 